It was early one summer morning. I don't remember the exact time, but I believe it was in July, perhaps around 7.30 or 8 o'clock. John Bransford was 11 years old in the summer of 1918. He lived with his family in Nashville, Tennessee. Decades later, in 1983, John sat down for an interview with songwriter Bobby Braddock, where he recollected his memories of July 9, 1918. Someone came banging on the front door of the house. The door was answered immediately, and it was a friend of the family's. He came in and wanted to get help immediately. He was hollering to come down quick and bring everything you can. My father and I rushed over, and when I saw the horrible, nightmarish situation, I couldn't believe it. I had never seen anything like it. I'm your host, Forrest Kelly, and here is 10 minutes about the Great Train Wreck of 1918. It was your typical summer day on July 9th of 1918. The sun had risen over the bustling city of Nashville within the last hour. That morning, the Nashville, Chattanooga and St. Louis Railway's number four train, overcrowded with passengers, departed Nashville heading for Memphis. Though the train was running behind schedule, there was nothing unusual about the day. At the same time, the number one train was heading inbound towards the city from Memphis. It too was running behind schedule. Both trains were traveling opposite directions on the same train track. The inbound train heading into Nashville had the right of way on a 10 mile stretch of the railway that narrowed down to a single lane. These 10 miles included a turn known as Dutchman's Curve. This meant that the number four train, which had just departed Union Station in Nashville, was required to wait on the section of double track for the inbound train to cross the stretch of single track. Both train operators were aware that the inbound train, the number one, had the right of way. Yet there was a critical error made by the outbound number four train, the consequences of which were catastrophic. At roughly 7.20 in the morning, the two trains, both traveling at 60 miles per hour, crashed into one another in a head-on collision just miles outside of Nashville at Dutchman's Curve. The sound of the wreck was heard for miles. Another witness Bobby Braddock interviewed, George Boyles, lived just half a mile from the site of the wreck. In 1983, he reflected on the sound of the accident. I remember hearing a crash and then some of the most dreadful screams you ever heard in your life. The outbound train should have waited for the inbound train to pass before continuing on towards the stretch of single track, and yet train engineer David Kennedy did not stop. It is believed that the conductor of the outbound number four, who was tasked with keeping an eye out for the number one train, had been busy checking tickets and hadn't noticed that the double tracks had ended before the number one had passed by. As the number four train approached the last signal tower before the span of single track and Dutchman's curve, Kennedy is believed to have blown his whistle and was initially given a green signal to proceed. Despite this, Kennedy ought to have known that the number one hadn't yet passed them by and should have stopped the train. The tower, realizing its mistake, quickly dropped a red sign and blew an emergency whistle, alerting the train to stop. But they were too late. The number four continued on towards Dutchman's Curve, where it met the number one at full steam. On the following morning's edition of the Nashville Tennessean, littered among news of the Great War in Europe, 
read the paper's headline in capital letters. 121 persons are killed and 57 injured in train collision. The adjoining article described the scene in grisly detail. The cornfield on both sides of the track was trampled by many feet and littered with fragments of iron and wood hurled from the demolished cars. The dead lay here and there, grotesquely sprawling where they fell. Everywhere there was blood and suffering and chaos. This is the scene that 11-year-old John Bransford witnessed that morning with his father. They were some of the first people to arrive at the scene. I was pretty close to 12, but that's not an age to take a kid to see a tragedy like this. One of the worst disasters in American history. The whole thing was simply unbelievable. We got there and I began to go to these people that were injured, because at this point there was almost no one there. We got down there and we went to these people and gave them everything we could to help them. I have never seen such a thing in my life. Contrary to the Nashville Tennesseans headline, the official death total is slightly less, standing at 101 people killed, though many believe that number is too modest, with more than 170 injured. In the article published in that paper, it's estimated that 80% of those who died in the wreck were black. Though that number is an overestimation, it's true that the majority of those killed in the wreck were black. In 1918, Tennessee, like much of the South, was still racially segregated. Jim Crow laws separated blacks from whites in nearly all functions of life. Blacks were required to use separate and often inferior schools, hospitals, restaurants, restrooms, and even drinking fountains, in essence making them second-class citizens. These Jim Crow laws were bolstered by an 1896 Supreme Court ruling that upheld the constitutionality of these separate but equal doctrines. Thus, black passengers were required to ride in outdated, segregated wooden rail cars directly behind the train engine, while white passengers rode in steel Pullman cars towards the back of the train. Due to the ongoing war overseas, the federal government had taken control of the country's railways. Therefore, with train schedules tightened, many trains were overcrowded. The number one and number four trains were no exception. Many black passengers were stuffed into the segregated cars, most of whom were traveling from further south to work at the DuPont Munitions Factory in Old Hickory, Tennessee. When the two trains collided, the wooden cars were utterly obliterated. 68 of the 101 official deaths were African American. Underneath what was thought to be a heap of metal from the engine, the bodies of six black men were discovered mutilated beyond recognition. This is just one example of the terrible carnage of that day. It's believed that if all the cars on the train were metal, less than half of the deaths would have occurred. They were moaning and groaning, witness John Bransford said, somberly recalling the gravity and despair of the situation. While I was there, several times they took up big wash tubs full of arms and legs. They told me later on that they had a hell of a time assembling them. They didn't know who they belonged to. I remember one where the people in the car were all locked in and couldn't get out. They were moaning and asking for help, and you couldn't help them. I was a little kid, but I would have done anything to have helped them. But you didn't know what to do. 
As another witness, George Boyles points out in his account of events, there were no roads leading to the crash site. Regardless, thousands of locals arrived at the wreck. It's estimated that nearly 40,000 people arrived at the scene, some simply to gawk, but many to offer aid. The locals showed great hospitality in a time of need. Many opened up their homes and barns to survivors of the accident, offering them refuge until they could make further arrangements. While Catholic nuns rendered their services to write letters for the survivors to send home to their families, letting them know they were safe. Despite the catastrophic events of July 9th, by the 10th the track had been cleared and life continued. Though the wreck had shocked the community and shaken the lives of those who lost loved ones, after a few days the accident was all but forgotten. With World War I still being waged overseas, it engulfed the country's attention. As historian David Ewing explained, by Friday, the news of the dead of the war had replaced the dead of the accident. The death toll was 647 Americans, and 703 died the previous week. So when 101 people died in a train crash in Nashville, it was not as big a story. Between the crews of the two trains, five crew members were killed, including the outbound number four's engineer, David Kennedy. In the aftermath of events, the responsibility and fault for the wreck has been almost entirely placed on his shoulders. The engineer of the inbound number one train, the train which had the right of way, was William Floyd. He too was killed. He was set to retire the following day. Among the dead were those who could not be identified many of whom were buried in unmarked graves at Mount Ararat Cemetery in Nashville. Over 100 years later, the wreck of the number four train and the number one train at Dutchman's Curve remains the deadliest railway accident in U.S. history. Thank you for listening. For 10 minutes about, I've been your host, Forrest Kelly, and that's all I've got to say about the great train wreck of 1918.